Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Alright folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 164 today. We're going to be talking about Atlantis and metaphysics and most likely a little younger Dryas impact hypothesis. Uh, We've got a wonderful guest today. This is a true treat. Uh, We have Randall Carlson here and um, man, you know, it's been a while. We were trying to get him on, but we finally got him here and I think we're going to have a really, really fun episode, a lot of fun things to talk about. So you can head on over to his website at randallcarlson.com. I have the link down below and I also have the link to his podcast Cosmographia that he does with the Snake Brothers. Shout out to the Brothers of the Serpent. Uh, Thank you, Russ and Kyle, for helping set this up. And also, why don't you head on over to indrasweb.org and sign up to get an alert when the app goes live. If you don't know what Indra's Web is, it's the app that we created. Uh, it's dedicated towards rational discourse for the topics that we talk about on this podcast, ancient civilizations, fringe theories and hypotheses and topics and all that kind of wonderful stuff, uh, along with a bunch of other topics. And also head on over to our website at mindescapepodcast.com. We have all of our links on there. And also, we are probably going to do a Patreon at the end with Randall. So you can head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash mindescapepodcast. For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content and access to those episodes. Wow, that was a mouthful. But welcome on, Randall Carlson. Well, thanks for having me, guys. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. I am pumped for this. Like I said, we've been waiting to get you on for a while. I'm glad you're here. Uh, We had a good conversation on the phone as well. Um, So, you know, we talked a little bit before, and I wanted to kind of talk about Atlantis first. And But before we get to, you know, the Greek, you know, the Crataeus and the Timaeus and all that kind of wonderful stuff, I do want to talk a little bit about ancient Michigan. And, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about, like, the... Uh, formation that was found in Grand Traverse Bay that has supposedly a, a mastodon carved into it. And then also they recently found by a pipeline some uh, underwater formations uh, in the Straits of Mackinac. So uh, can you give us a little idea of kind of, you know, what was maybe going on there? Were those ancient American peoples that, you know, h- how old do you think that could be? Because they kind of date it to the end of the last ice age. Well, yeah, it, it would date to the last around the end of the last ice age. My first guess would be it was the Clovis people who mm-hmm. were here um, right until pretty much the uh, Younger Dryas boundary, which is dated between 12,800 and 12,900 years ago. Um, especially if it's got a, uh, you said a carving of a mastodon? Yeah, I mean, there's some people that have debated it, but um, it looks like a mastodon mm-hmm. to me. And if anybody goes, mm-hmm. you can pull up a picture. I think the guy that found the site is named, uh, oh, what's his name? I think it's Dr. Dr. Mark something. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, Dr. Mark Holly. Uh, he's an archaeologist from, I think it's Northeastern Michigan University. Um, and 
he thinks and they put like an outline over it and you can see the distinct mm-hmm. chisel marks or whatever they used to carve it out it's tool marks mm-hmm. um but i mean what so what does that mean does that mean that those before those glaciers melted that there was people living in these areas well the chronology there is hard to work out because there have been multiple lobes of ice that have um, intruded upon what is now the basin of Lake Michigan. So there were times when what is now the basin of Lake Michigan was completely filled with ice. So it wouldn't have happened then. Uh, there were other times when the ice had melted back, probably during a period from 14 to 15,000 years ago. There was, a, there was a warming that occurred and the ice shrunk back. Of course, at that point, there would have been uh, a body of water uh, in, in the immediate foreground of the ice that would have been occupying the basin. So then when the Younger Dryas came on and the cooling came, that water probably froze up again and the ice expanded. Then when the ice finally began to retreat again at about 11,600, there was a period where the water of Michigan was considerably higher than now. And then in the post-Ice Age era, there was a period where it was considerably lower than now. And I know when I did the, uh, I did some research for Graham Hancock when he was writing America Before. He asked specifically about uh, megalithic stones found on the bottom of Lake Michigan. Now this is three or four years ago, so I, I dove into it a bit. I found some very interesting stuff, but I don't remember the specific dating of it. However, what what's interesting here is the time at which the Michigan Basin was exposed because of low water level was post-glacial. And it would have also been in the Holocene during which mastodons were presumably extinct. However, there's a new study out that suggests that there was a post-Younger Dryas survival of mastodons, which I haven't had time to read yet. So I don't know um, how convincing it is, but I've always thought there could have been a um, survival of limited numbers of species that later went ex- or, or earlier went extinct. Uh, for example, mastodons would be a good candidate. Um, we know that there was some uh, the the pygmy mammoths uh, that kind of that survived on some of the islands. So because you know when the sea level rose because of the melting of the ice sheets, there were um, land masses that became isolated. Um, you know, for example, the peninsula, the the the, um, the Aleutian Islands. A lot of those were interlinked. Mm-hmm. A lot of the islands off the co- west coast of Canada, for example, were part of the mainland. So when uh, sea level came up, just like pretty much everybody knows that the the Bering Land Bridge got drowned under sea level because most of that whole land area there is is typically only two to four hundred feet above. Uh, above sea level or lower sea. So when sea level is down, the land is exposed. When sea level comes up, it drowns. So what happened with the pygmy mammoths is that the sea level rose and these bodies of land became isolated as islands. They became insular. And now because of the constricted territory, we almost see an evolutionary adaptation occur because the very large mammoths that weighed up to four, five, and six tons now over a period of a couple of millennia become reduced in size so that they're literally not even half the size of their ancestral uh, mammoths. So there was a case where you did have post um, Younger Dryas survival of 
of mammoths, maybe down as recent as six to 7,000 years ago. And they, you know, I don't know what caused their final extinction. Humans may have had a, a role to play in that. Um, I would say maybe had a role. I wouldn't say convincingly that it was necessarily humans, but they may have. I do not accept the idea that humans were primarily responsible for the mass extinction of multiple species, though, that uh, all went extinct at the very end of the um, of the younger at the very end of the um, Alarod, which was the stage that preceded the Younger Dryas, hmm. which was the period I was just talking about where there was a gradual warming. Because the late glacial maximum, which was the, the largest extent of the North American glacial co complex, was around 16 to 20,000 years ago. And so between, say, 16,000 years ago and 13,000 years ago, what you had was a period of warming, which was almost certainly the result of the changing geometry between the Earth and the Sun uh, through a series of three different factors called the Milankovitch uh, factors. Because what that does is you have this, because of the fact that the uh, ellipticity of the Earth's orbit changes shape somewhat, its distance from the Sun changes, its angular tilt changes, there's this interplay of these factors that, that uh, affect the distribution of solar heat, solar radiation over the surface of the Earth. So sometimes it's consuming more, uh, absorbing more, sometimes it's absorbing less. When it absorbs more, there's a warming, there's a very detectable warming, like maybe up to a degree or even two degrees. This was going on so that the Milankovitch factors were aligned in such a way that around 14 to 15,000 years ago, you would have had a gradual warming. Hmm. Now, that gradual warming seems to have been evident in a lot of the, the records, you, because, of, for example, as the, uh, as the ice sheet is receding north, the primary species of trees that were bordering the ice sheet was spruce trees. So at 15, 16, 17,000 years ago, late glacial maximum, the spruce trees, the limit, the northern limit of the spruce trees, whereas, for example, in middle, mid, uh, say, Ohio, right in there, right in that area, um, and then as the ice retreated back over a period of two to three millennium, the trees follow. So you can date the tree. You can date the, 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 you can, you know, through radiocarbon dating, you can determine when, for example, the ice left and the trees came back. Mm. That's just an example. So now the ice has receded um, from its maximum. And then you get to the younger dryas in this kind of, what we would think of as, as normal or gradual warming is suddenly interrupted by this huge, by this massive spasm of climate change where the, the global climate oscillated by four, five, up to 10 degrees centigrade within a matter of a few years. Maybe some of the evidence suggests it was maybe even less than a year. Uh, 10 degrees centigrade is going to be about 18 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's like the, the maximum range of these massive uh, temperature spasms. So it's almost as if what it appears is when you look at the, the graphs of climate change that are reconstructed from oxygen isotope analysis taken from ice cores, what you see is a massive spike of warming right at about between 12,800 and 12,900. And then that's followed by a very rapid cooling that now lasts for the next 12 or 1300 years. Mm. And then at 11,600, there's another rapid spike of warming. And then that's followed by a more gradual climb 
of the global climate out of the Ice Age into the interglacial warmth of the Holocene period that we're in now. And it was this opening up of the world from the depths of the Ice Age and the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from 180 parts per million to 280 parts per million that actually made it possible for agriculture to be viably practiced. When carbon dioxide is down to 180 parts per million, it's probably not really, uh, agriculture is not going to be, it's going to be a very challenging occupation. Mm. Um, because most food crops really want carbon dioxide. In fact, 280 parts per million is actually very low for food crops. So what you see is with the warming that occurred at the end of the Younger Dryas, then when if you, what happens is the, the ocean is a tremendous reservoir of carbon dioxide and its solubility is based upon temperature. So when the water of the oceans cool, it sucks in carbon dioxide and when the water's warm, it expels carbon dioxide. So whatever was driving the warmth caused the oceans to expel carbon dioxide. And this occurred around 10,000 years ago. So now at that point, planting crops becomes feasible. So what I'm getting at with all of this is it seems like we had a major uh, global climatic and environmental shift that occurred at the end of this transition from the glacial to the interglacial age. The high point of this transition was the Younger Dryas. And the Younger Dryas is bookended by two catastrophes. At the first catastrophe, um, which occurs about 12,800 to 12,900, I'm going to call, just call it 12,900. Mm. This is where the, the, the cosmic impact proxies are showing up at that horizon, you know, where you've got the fingerprints of something cosmic that apparently happened associated with this sudden spasm in, in global climate. It also looks like there may maybe was a major melting event that occurred around 14,600. So it looks like the ice age was terminated by, uh, at this point, the evidence would suggest a, a sort of a triple catastrophe that, that involved a major meltwater event at 14,600, which caused massive flooding and sudden rise of sea level. So obviously, if you have a sudden rise of sea level, maybe over maybe 10 or 20 feet over a matter of a few years, obviously any coastal community is going to become extinct in the process. Mm. Um, and so we have the event that happened at 14,600 has been named by uh, oceanographers and marine geologists as Meltwater Pulse 1A because they're able to actually, by studying the, 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 the low sea level stand at, at, during the late glacial maximum, which has actually left shorelines, right, 400 feet below the present surface of the sea, they can actually monitor the sea level rising from minus 400 up to what it is now, right? Mm. So you basically had three events where tremendous volumes of water were discharged off the ice sheet back into the ocean basins, 14,600, 12,900, and 11,600. And it's interesting, you brought up Atlantis. I pointed this out at many times because Plato gives the basically the dating of Atlantis as 9,000 years occurring before Solon's uh, exile into Egypt, which is what he talks about in the Timaeus and Cotias, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Solon's exile was is dated, say, roughly at 600 B.C., Right. Well, in uh, three different instances, uh, Plato gives the date for the events surrounding the, the great war between the Proto-Athenians and the Atlanteans as 9,000 years 
prior to Solon's exile in Egypt. So you add the 9,000 to the 600, and that's where you get 11,600. And then it was right after that, the Great War, that where, where the Atlanteans went down in defeat um, because they were trying to imperialize, you know, subjugate the entire area inside the Mediterranean, according to the Platonic narrative. The uh, Proto-Athenians organized all of the the, 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 the countries within the uh, Mediterranean, they fought off the Atlanteans, um, and then right after that war is when the great catastrophe occurred, and there was a huge earthquake and floods, and Atlantis subsided beneath the waves. And that was and what? So was That was three generations from Solon to Plato, wasn't it? It was like one of his mother's relatives, Plato's mother's relatives. Yeah, it was an uncle. It was uh, Critias. It was, there was um, Critias the Younger, and then there was Critias the Elder, and then there was Dropidus or Dropidus. Um, I think there was a younger and an elder, and then it went back to Solon from there. And he learned from uh, priest uh, Sankis, or is that how you pronounce it, in Egypt? Sachas, Sankis, something like that. Yes, uh, yes. It's, it's something like that. I can't pronounce it. Closer to the second version you yeah. said. Uh, yeah. Um, so... You know, all that knowledge gets passed. So what does that mean, though, in terms of Atlantis obviously being um, conveyed from ancient Egypt, you know, the ancient Egyptians, too? Because obviously a lot of the Greeks, pre-Socratics, and then even uh, some of the later Greeks went to Egypt to learn, you know, building and mathematics and all that kind of stuff. So what does that mean in terms of is because we think of Atlantis as being associated with Greece. But do you think it's more closely related with ancient Egypt? Well, only from the standpoint that it would have been closer in time mm. to, to ancient Egypt. I mean, you know, Greece, the, the rise of classical Greece was basically a couple of millennia after. Right. You know, so, but even though you were, we're talking about time spans here that, you know, we're looking at 11,600 years ago, basically, is which is interesting because this is the dates that are kind of showing up um, for the youngest strata of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Um, which puts us right back in that same era of yeah. 11, I mean that's right. That's right on the money, right? Because I mean, cause yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have been careful to kind of correlate Gobekli Tepe to Atlantis, but um, I mean, what do you? What are your thoughts on it? Is it just some part of this um, this global ancient civilization? Or I mean, we did we did a breakdown of it. We did a side channel yeah. a while back, and we stopped you know posting on it, but. Um, I came to the conclusion through studying and looking into all the stuff and reading all Plato's stuff on it and everything. I, I like the Azores because there's a convergence mm. of a few plates there, right? I mean, um, and if you're looking at like, you know, seismic activity and things of that nature, I could definitely see how mm -hmm. um, pre-Younger Dryas that those would have been mountains that are now what are just the, the very, you know, uh, sea level mm -hmm. islands of the Azores. Yeah. Uh, to me, you know, I, we actually, the first, I think, four episodes of the Cosmographia podcast, we really dove into Plato's uh, account of Atlantis. Mm. And so I kind of, what I did was I looked at, I, I did a reading of Plato's account, uh, looking at it through the lens of geology, primarily, and geography. And to try to show that, at least in my opinion, the Azores is the most likely location. If, if Atlantis was, in fact, real 
uh, or there was some kind of a civilization or culture in the time period which Plato describes, I would say the Azores, for many reasons, is uh, the most likely candidate. And that's what I covered in, in great detail in those first four episodes mm. of the Cosmographia podcast. Yeah, those are actually it, really good episodes. I, I did watch those uh, a while back. I highly recommend those. If anybody hasn't heard any of your Cosmographia stuff yet, I would start there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you just said, it's a triple junction here. You've got the uh, African plate on the southeastern section coming up. You've got just north of there, uh, bounding it is the Eurasian plate, and then immediately to the west is the North American plate. And that is a zone of very thin crust, relatively speaking, and it is a zone that apparently has displayed a lot of vertical movement as a result of the uh, the shifting uh, masses of ice uh, on the continent and the transfer of very large masses of water back into the ocean with the melting of the ice sheets. Um, one of the things I described on the uh, Cosmographia podcast to tr- for people to try to understand how this uh, process may work is by introducing the term um, isostasy, which is basically just the vertical movements of the Earth's crust as a result of changing loads. And, um, you know, when the ice sheet uh, melted away from North America, there was a there has been an enormous amount of rebound, vertical movement upward, um, because you know when you're, the weight actually can literally compress the crust of the of the Earth. In the case of the great ice sheets, it may have been as much as anywhere in varying between a thousand and two thousand feet of crustal depression. And when the ice was removed, that land begins to rebound, isostatic rebound. Right. Mm-hmm. At the same time, that is happening. This uh, tremendous mass of weight is being relieved from the continent. Where is it going? It's going right back into the ocean basins. Now, the ocean basins, particularly if you look at the, the, the North Atlantic Basin, the entire North Atlantic Ridge is like a huge suture line that runs down the center of the ocean. And when you look at it, there's a whole series of uh, east-west transform faults, which, in effect, uh, you could almost think of as Earth's stretch marks. And if you think of the transform faults, like my fingers being locked together, this is what allows the the vertical movement. I think a very um, pronounced vertical movement mm. that would occur as the result of the transfer of water back in and the rise, the 400 foot sea level rise. And the isostatic compensation that occurs is not going to be uniform over the whole ocean basin. It's going to be it's going to manifest most strongly in those zones of of most uh, the weakest zones, which in this case would obviously be the um, the Mid Atlantic Ridge, hmm. and the Azores itself, the island complex now are the tops of mountains that are part of a what's called a microcontinent, and the microcontinent is now two thousand to three thousand feet below the sea uh, sea level, but there is a microcontinent there. It's often called um, because it's a, like a whole, it's a whole different. Um, category it's not even um you know it's obviously not big enough to be ranked as a continent so it's called a micro continent Mm -hmm. and um you can almost think of iceland it's about the size of iceland the uh which of course is split right up the middle by the by uh the mid-atlantic zone there the uh the spreading center that occurs uh in between the ridge um so 
if you could imagine something about that size sunk under 2,000 to 3,000 feet of seawater, and there is actually empirical evidence that that, that landmass may have been above sea level during the Ice Age. Uh, and, a lot, and, and so I get into those studies. They have uh, a mythology, correct? I, I remember looking into it, and they have their own mythology for ancient times, and it being the... You know the mountains being taller, or something along. I forget what I what I found, but it was something having to do with at one point there was more there or something. Yeah, yeah, they do. They have legends, uh, and from what I understand, those legends suggest that they themselves believe that this was once part of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, these days when you say Atlantis, I, I I see a lot of comments and things. People say, "Oh, well, you know." As soon as I heard him start talking about Atlantis, he lost all credibility. Right? Yeah. I've seen I've seen that multiplied. Okay, well, okay. Did you listen? Did you actually have you actually read Plato? And I've no. read four accounts, four different translations of Plato, and I stumbled don't. through the original Greek to find out like what was the original Greek term that he described? Did he say continent? No, um, Nasos means island. That's the term that he used. So. You know, it's like, you know, I've seen some of the skeptics say things like, well, we know from geological studies that there could be no continent on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And to which I would totally say, yeah, I I agree 100 percent. We're not talking about a continent here, though. We're talking about a microcontinent. And that microcontinent has empirical evidence that's been that evidence has been accumulating since the 1940s, actually. Um, that that landmass was in the very recent geological past above above the level of the sea. Hmm. Well, um, so what do you what, think what about we, like oh, some of the alternative ones that have come up over the last like three years? You know, you have the there was a big road. push the Recot structure in Mauritania. You've got the Donana National Park that came up in Spain. Um, you have you know there was all these. People kind of looking, using all the, you know, based on all your episodes on Joe Rogan with, you know, you and Graham and talking about all that kind of stuff, you started to see this stuff spring up. Um, what do you think about some of those locations as possibilities or do you not like them or what, what about them? Do you, you know, don't you well, like well, the recap structure? I, I, you know, I don't think that that was Atlantis, obviously, because for one thing, there's no evidence that it has been below sea level anytime within within the entire quaternary. Which people hang on the aesthetics, though, years. right? Like the concentric circles, that's what people are hanging on, how the vi- visually it looks like what people think of as Atlantis. Yes, but the scales are completely off. Yeah, the stadia, you know, is, That's I know all that stuff's off. Yeah, and in fact, in the presentation that I did on Atlantis, I conclude by looking in detail at the whole recap structure in, in the context of Plato's description. And... What I, you know, okay, what I'm putting forward is a hypothesis, and this is just a hypothesis, and I, but I think it's a, it has a lot of circumstantial evidence to support it, is that during the latter part of the Ice Age, there could have been a, what we would advance, I say, when you know, you got to be careful. When you say, oh, there was an advanced civilization, what does that mean? Well, we're presumably an advanced civilization. Does that mean equivalent to us? You know, where they, did they have airplanes? Did they have computers were they on the internet you know i mean is that what we define as as advanced or could we simply mean 
that they had navigational skills, they had a, a knowledge of astronomy, of geometry. We know that peoples at the dawn of history had a, a very sophisticated knowledge of geometry and astronomy, and probably to some extent geology as well. Uh, they had navigational skills, you know, three, four, five thousand years ago, probably even six thousand years ago. Okay, so what I describe in that particular series is let's uh, hypothesize that there could have been a maritime culture on a large scale whose whose basis of operations was a large island or island complex in the mid-Atlantic for which there is empirical evidence that it existed and that they had navigational and astronomy skills, but, you know, not flying machines or crystal ray guns or anything like that. You know, Plato doesn't describe anything like that. What he describes maybe would be the Phoenician culture or the Minoan culture times 10. Yeah, I was going to say, right. that, you know, that, that would be probably the most similar to what we would know based on the descriptions. Yes, yes, right. So there's nothing so outlandish about assuming that such a civilization could have existed and that they could have had extensive uh, colonization program and that they if they had navigational skills that they could have sailed to the uh, to North America to South America they could have sailed into the uh, inside the Mediterranean and certainly sailed as far as as Egypt there's nothing really outlandish about no. that idea at all um, so I mean even Thor, I, Thor Heyerdahl proved that you could just make a reed, you know, lo, you know, indigenous uh, stuff, you know, reeds and things like that and put a boat together and sail from the coast of Chile to Easter Island or the uh, French Polynesia, you know. So obviously if you're able to do that, you know, there's obviously civilizations that were better boat builders and understood uh, with less back then that they could probably get around pretty easily. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Maurice thinks that's credible then? <laughs> yeah, he, my, my, he's my, my parrot. Whatever I say, he's just going to say, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm relieved. I was my, I was afraid that he, uh, Maurice might be thinking this is, hey, this is getting really out. I hope he says that. Let's get, <laughs> let's get something going here. Let's get some, some naysaying. Yeah, well, um, so in a nutshell, that's kind of my take on Atlantis. Um, well, I think, uh, like I said, if anybody's interested in like a longer version with all the details, definitely check out uh, the Cosmographia uh, Atlantis series because you, you do go over kind of all the different aspects and takes and the way Plato describes it and how it was transferred and all that stuff. So, Yeah, and, and as to all the other locations, I mean, a lot of the areas that have proposed are in themselves quite interesting. I mean, the recap structure is very interesting. Um, in itself, it's an ano geological anomaly, but mm -hmm. the studies I've read would suggest that it's definitely volcanic, um, that it's a volcanic diatreme that, that has come up, that has been highly eroded. And and I do get into that, into the studies, so that um, you can see what, you know, the mainstream geologists who've studied the thing. But, but there is, like I said, no evidence that it's been below sea level. Mm. Um, anytime and and okay so i mean plato describes an island that sinks right and that's the end of it so the recap structure as i recall is two to three thousand feet above sea level so like okay the thing i've always tried to say is look 
Plato's very specific in his details, right? So what I try to do is go, let's look at those details and see if you, you, you follow his details and see if it really suggests anything that's, that's believable or not. But the question I would ask is, how far can you deviate from those details and still have it be Atlantis? You know, the, the, the critics have said Atlantis was basically a contrivance of Plato, that he event, invented Atlantis to be a metaphor for his idealized concept of the socio-political state, right? Um, now, I don't argue and say that that's completely out of the question. I, I would certainly think that Plato would probably take what may have been a pre-existing legend and grafted some of his own um, ideas of, of, you know, the idealized society onto it. Sure, sure, that could have been part of it. Hmm. But what I'm suggesting is that underlying it, there may have been a real tradition that had historic authenticity, and enough of those details make it through Plato's account to see, is there anything here that confirms or, or does it just completely contradict what Plato says? And when you get into that, you realize, well, there's a lot here that, that is actually confirmed by the empirical evidence of sea level rise, that there were uh, island masses in the mid-Atlantic that sank. They would have had a very benign climate because of the, the uh, southward diversion of the Gulf Stream, uh, you know, hundreds of miles south of where it now diverts, goes all the way up to the, you know, up to the British Isles and, and almost to Scandinavia before it reroutes south. But during the Ice Age, it routed right around, curiously, right around the, the Azores. And so... Really, if you're going to reconstruct climate during the Ice Age, the Azores would have been a, a very benign climate, relatively speaking. And it could have been a place where people could have evolved a, a culture that could have endured for centuries, if not millennia. Of course, again, it would presuppose the, the possibility of, of uh, navigational skills and seafaring skills. And so that kind of becomes the linchpin. Could have people during the Ice Age have had seafaring skills, which would imply navigational skills, which would imply knowledge of astronomy. And mm. I think the answer is, I th yes, I think they could have. Interesting. I want to pivot a little bit here. We did uh, Super Volcano. We started a series. I, we have still yet to do part two. Um, but we focused on the Yellowstone uh, caldera and the, um, uh, you know, uh, Lake Toba. Now, Looking into that, there was an article that came out that week about Hell's Cave, or is it Hell's Cave, I think, in Hall's Texas? Cave. Hall's Cave. Hall's yeah. Cave, that's right, Hall's Cave. Um, and they were talking about how they found some evidence that there could have been a volcanic eruption that might have caused the the you know temperature uh, decrease. But what they were saying is uh, two, three degrees or whatever. Wouldn't that, or however many, uh, wouldn't that have to come... We'd we did the episodes in the Super Bowl and I found that, you know, all these fallouts, they do cause a drop in a temperature, which leads mm -hmm. to famine and all these different things. Sure. So, uh, but looking at, you know, reading that article and, and looking at all the evidence and stuff, I mean, what would account then for the, the, the microspherules and the diet, the nano diamonds, and then all these other things that, you know, like what, how could that be correlated? Or my other question would be, could an impact activate some sort of hot spot or something like that. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying the Yellowstone one, but maybe there, there was another one. I know they found two recent 
uh, was it McMullen Creek or there was two of them in Utah they found recently they were actually the largest supervolcanic eruptions mm-hmm. uh, uh, in that history from that hot spot moving from southern uh, Oregon all the way across to where it is now um, so do you think that uh, 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 a meteorite or a comet could have activated something like that? Or do you think that maybe it was just a coincidence or do you think that there's really nothing to the volcano theory? No, no, I'll, I would, I no. there's abundant evidence that there was uh, widespread volcanism during that late glacial glacial interglacial transition. And that would only make sense when you begin to think about the, uh, the gigantic mass transfer that took place. Not only would there have been, um, super volcanoes, there would have been uh, super seismic events as well. Um, so, yeah, certainly there could be a correlation. Now, <clears throat> the thing is, is that volcanism is not likely to cause the melting. The volcanism is going to put material into the air, sulfur dioxides and so forth, that are going to reflect solar energy and cause cooling. So, there is evidence, uh, maybe I can even pull up a slide here at some point where I have documented and, and followed studies of others who have actually documented where you can see thick layers of volcanic ash um, mm. sandwiched in between flood layers okay. of, that were meltwater floods. So we know that there was multiple volcanoes erupting around the world during this transitionary period. So uh, I, I did read the article. Uh, the article makes the case that there was volcanoes erupting and there was a, a a geochemical signature of the volcanoes um i think it was it was osmium isotopes if i recall yes it was osmium isotopes that had a uh, terrestrial signature rather than a celestial signature mm. um and what that implied was that the osmium isotopes were consistent with a a mantle derived source which would imply volcanism rather than being delivered from space I have no doubt that, that there could have been volcanism. They didn't actually uh, document volcanic ash. What they documented was the, the osmium isotopic signature, which was consistent with volcanic impact. They then sort of made the leap, though, that now that was the volcanoes were now associated with the mass extinction of, of mm-hmm. the megafaun and so on. But the... the um, the impact proxies, such as magnetic grains and microspherals um, and so on, have been very well documented in multiple sites, mm. um, all, do, several dozen sites now, including Hall's Cave. So the interpretation that the finding of an isotopic signature of a large volcanic eruption in the area of Hall's Cave, Texas, does not contradict or refute the idea that there were impacts. In fact. I, I think the, that the impacts were probably the trigger. The the impacts triggered the, the the catastrophic melting, and the catastrophic melting then triggered a an endogenic or terrestrial response, which would have manifested through in the form of large earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. Yeah, they don't understand how super volcanoes work because I did a deep dive in. I watched documentaries. I read. I read all the stuff you could find. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really understand, you know, the, how the rhyolite gets to the point uh, where it does, where it's, you know, uh, becomes explosive and that explosive. Uh, but I guess another question would be. Uh, in that paper, I didn't see anything about like a, the VEI or volcanic explosivity index. Um, what do you do? 
do you remember was is, do you think it would be some sort of like normalish volcanic eruption meaning like not an 8.0 or higher or do you think it was you know because wouldn't they know if it was a super volcano because everything i've read um there would be tons and tons of ash mm. i mean just ton. yeah right and there were there was a lot of ash there okay. were, and, and and um i could probably even show you uh an example here in a second uh by pulling up an image um, of the uh, the flood layers, and you can see that there is a lot of ash okay. um, sandwiched in between. So there, there were major... Now, there was no evidence of anything on the, the scale of the original Yellowstone eruptions. Right. But there were large-scale eruptions that would have been probably on the scale of Pinatubo, maybe even Krakatoa. Mm. Um, yeah, because even all the Yellowstone's eruption, I was surprised they weren't all uh, super vol- like volcanic explosions. Some of them were just basaltic flows, you know. Correct, correct. Yes. Um, so yeah, it. it um, I think that what we had during that transition was a perfect storm. Um, that there were impacts. There was gigantic flooding. There was volcanoes. Uh, there were massive fires. And all of this stuff was concentrated in the period of a couple of millennia. And at the end of that, pretty much the Pleistocene world was erased. Mm-hmm. And half of the great megafaunal species that lived on Earth succumbed and didn't make it through that transitionary zone. Um, I'm going to, let's see, let's try this. Try yeah, we could try and share the screen stuff yeah. now, share some pics. I'll play cameraman. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting stuff. I, you know, I went in, you know, cause I, I, the reason why I looked into super volcanoes and Yellowstone and all that, cause that's when everything was getting super active, uh, at the time and people keep writing articles like, is it going to happen? And I think that there's, there's a time frame. It's like what, every 600,000 years. Yeah, I was going to say it's, we're in the window, but the window is a couple thousand years. So. Yeah. So. So what you're saying then, Maurice, is I don't need to, like, panic right at this moment? Uh, you can if you want, but uh, I wouldn't. <laughs> well, you know, I'm always on the verge of panicking. <laughs> well, they call me Dr. Anxiety, so I'm always about to fidget around, you know. Oh, okay. Well, I hope this conversation isn't making you nervous. No, it's actually quite calming. Okay. Are we are we getting any success with the screen share yet? Uh, we're right now. I just have you up, but did you hit the screen share yet on your end of things? We're doing a little. Oh, ca- I got I got to do that. Don't we're doing I? a little camera limbo right now. Okay, start sharing. Let's see. I think it should work now. Okay, I'll get used to Skype. You know, I'm was so proud of myself in the last year and a half. <clears throat> I learned how to use Zoom. But this is like I said. I hate Zoom. I mean, time. I'll do it if I have to because sometimes we have guests where it's the best option for the. Okay. Uh, okay. So now I've got it up the, for the screen. So whatever you pull up will come up. Um, okay. But uh, there we go. There you go. That's thirteen thousand year old Mount Saint Helens ash. So wow. Mount Saint Helens was undergoing some major explosive eruptions. And what you're seeing here is, let's see, we can count from the top one, two, three, four mega flood back, mega back flood layers. Mm. 
You see, we're in the Yakima Valley, so this was not in the, the main trunk route of the, of the flood. This was in a backwash, a backwater area. So what you had was huge meltwater coming down what is now the Columbia Valley, the Columbia River Valley. But this is right adjacent to the Yakima, which was a tributary river to the Columbia. And so what happens is when you get this tremendous rush of meltwater, and here we're talking probably 500, say 500 million cubic feet per second, which is an inconceivably large amount of meltwater, and it's coming down the Columbia Valley, well, it backwashes into the tributaries. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty that, interesting. Yeah, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the backwash, which we can see actually four layers. So this, <clears throat> so the, the water, the floodwaters are actually moving up, upriver, upstream, upgradient. And as they're doing that, they're slowing down. And then as they slow down, they begin, <clears throat> they begin to um, deposit their sediment load. Mm. And then eventually they reverse direction and they flow back out. And what they do is they leave a thick layer of sediment behind. And you can actually, in this section, um, which is cut by the Yakima River, you can actually see four flood layers. And so at the top of the second flood layer is where you see the, the volcanic ash. So you had uh, a flood layer laid down, then another flood layer come in, and then you had this big dump of volcanic ash and then another flood layer came in on top of that. And and we know that this is a relatively low energy depositional environment because of the fact that if it was high energy, it would have completely, the turbidity currents would have completely um, intermingled with the volcanic ash and it would have been dispersed completely throughout the next mud layer. Hmm. But you, you've got a picture that as this backwash is moving upstream, it's slowing down, obviously. And then usually at, at its high elevation, it'll get to the same level as the water in the main trunk valley. <clears throat> and then when the main trunk valley, when its uh, discharge decreases and its water level drops, then the water level in the tributary valleys will drop along with it. And so you, what you're seeing here is a pulsed phenomena. And one of the controversies here is how much time separates each one of these pulses. And the mainstream view says that anywhere from 30 to 100 years separates each one. And I don't believe that. I think it's a matter of probably hours or a few days at the most that separates each of these layers. Hmm. Um, so but, do you think, uh, so is, is that's the main critique probably of a lot of your stuff is that you think it was more of a rapid thing while hmm. most of the mainstream academics think that there was a longer period between all this action, right? Well, yeah, see, so the mainstream view has this model that there is a gigantic glacial lake in western Montana held in by an ice dam, and it's just a larger version of what we see today, which is, uh, we've seen many instances of glacial outburst floods in the last 100, 150 years, particularly with the, with the, um, the recession of the Little Ice Age glacial masses, which actually 150 to 200 years ago to 250 right in there were the largest glacier masses on earth since the great ice age so mm. one of the things is when we've seen those glacier masses receding we've seen glacial lakes impounding uh proglacially that is in front of the glaciers if you have a tributary glacier sometimes um 
it will melt away and the main trunk glacier will hold that water in until the water pressure gets great enough that it can force its way through or over or under the, the main glacial mass. And then you have what's called an outburst flood or in uh, the, the Icelandic term is Jokulaups. And so you have a Jokulaups. And the reason is because in Iceland, you have many examples of outburst floods because you have an, a very large ice sheet there in um, Iceland. And under the ice sheet, you have volcanoes that erupt periodically. So when those volcanoes erupt, they produce reservoirs of subglacial meltwater. And then usually within two to four weeks, those, sub, that, those reservoirs will drain out of the through the ice, and they will discharge at the margin of the ice, and they will produce catastrophic flood flows. Okay. And so what mainstream geology has done is essentially extrapolated upwards from the, the modern examples of outburst floods and said, well, it's just a larger version of what we're seeing, you know, witnessed in the last century. And so they invoke the idea of an ice dam that holds in this lake and for various reasons, I find that untenable. The primary reason being that the water levels reached up to 2,000 feet in depth. And this is way, way beyond anything we've seen in modern times. Uh, typically, most uh, ice-dammed lakes will fail once the water gets maybe anywhere from 100 to like 300-foot depth maximum. But in the case of Lake Missoula and the outburst floods that created the Channel Scablands and presumably these rhythmical layers that we see here would have been 2,100 feet deep. And I argue that that's an impossible scenario, that there's no situation in which we would find glacial ice capable of withstanding those kinds of hydraulic pressures, that the glacial ice would have failed long before those depths of water would have been, would have, uh, been reached. And in fact, modern observations is consistent with that, that, mm. that glacial ice is not going to withstand those, th those kinds of depths and pressures. So that's where the primary difference comes in. And so in that model, what has to happen is that there's a failure of the ice dam, the lake drains. So now you have to reseal the valley. In this case, it's the Clark Fork Valley, right at roughly at the Montana-Idaho border. And you have to reseal that valley in the in the vicinity of Lake Pondere, which anybody can look on a map and they'll see Lake Pondere in northern Idaho. You have to reseal the valley and then refill the lake. <clears throat> so the question is, is how long does that process take? Well, they're basically saying, well, it takes 30 to 50 to 30 to 100 years <clears throat> for the ice to readvance south, seal off the valley, and for the 600 plus cubic miles of of uh, lake water to fill before the ice dam breaks um, will take, like I said, 30 to 100 years, right? Whereas I'm saying that, well, if the ice dam is an untenable model, which I believe it to be, then that, that chronology doesn't work anymore. So now what we have is we have optically stimulated luminescence dating and magnetic resonance dating, which suggests that some of the floods occurred as long ago as 18,000 years. The problem there is that there's other studies that show that the Cordilleran ice sheet didn't even exist 18,000 years ago, that it was it was something that formed rapidly at the very latter stages of the ice age. So in order for that ice mass to be able to receive, to advance far enough south to pond these 
600 cubic miles of water that forms Lake Missoula. It had to be at its massive, uh, massive, most massive extent. So there's a lot of contradictory assumptions there. One of the things about the uh, cosmic ray uh, intensity might very well fluctuate. There may be an enhanced um, flux of cosmic ray intensity during a cosmic impact. Mm. Um, and if that's the case, then I don't think that the that the dating is necessarily going to be trustworthy because the cosmic ray exposure is based upon how much cosmic rays are bombarding a particular rock that's exposed to the atmosphere. Well, if you have this, if you have an increased flux, it may bias that uh, exposure dating uh, to becoming even millennia older than it actually is. Didn't they find recently like a new mastodon or woolly mammoth species? I'm trying to think uh, uh, within the last year or so. I just saw an article come up where they were talking about like mast, uh, the Pacific mastodon or something that lived in that kind of that area. Yes. Is there is there any way like have they found any of that, you know, um, uh, in kind of in coordination kind of with what you're talking about? Or is that just such a new species that they don't know much about it yet? To my knowledge, that's really, yeah, because the, the one that they found, was it dated yet? See, I haven't had, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I just, the article literally case. came across the Twitter, my Twitter feed like a day ago or two days ago okay. or something like that. Okay, well, I'm not familiar with that study yet, so I would have to okay. uh, review that before I could give an opinion. Okay. Did you see the, the change in images that I, that I did? Yep. Yeah, we're okay. at the back flood. Yeah, you can see. Those are the back floods, and they're, you can actually almost think of them as large mud flows coming, washing in, you know, like real, almost like a slurry, coming in, moving 30, 40, 50 miles up the tributary valleys, slowing down, and then pausing, and then reversing direction and flowing back out. And with each outflow, it leaves a thick layer, and then that's followed by another pulse of of you know, thickly, uh, you know, sediment-laden water. Mm -hmm. And so what that gets back to, again, is the idea of, of timing between these successive pulses. And that's why, see, one of the things that I've maintained is this. You know, just like I was pointing out how it preserved the layer of volcanic ash, mm -hmm. and it, which suggested it was a low-energy depositional environment, right? Well, when you have a high-intensity environment, uh, uh, hydro, hydro, hydrologic environment, it's erosive. It strips away whatever is there, right? Then as you get the lower energy environments of deposition, that's where it starts laying down its sediment load, right? Now, if you can picture this, this backwash of water rushing up the, um, the tributary valleys, it's going to be slowing down, slowing down, slowing down the further it gets from the, the main flood until it finally basically just stops, at which point it's going to reverse direction and flow out. Well, you know that right there where it stops, that is going to be a very low energy environment because the energy and the erosive potential of moving water is totally dependent upon its velocity. Mm -hmm. The faster it moves, the easier it's going to be able to strip away whatever's there and, and be erosive. Okay, so now my point is this. There was nothing in this environment. You see, like if you look at these layers, and there are other layers. I've got photographs of, of other outcrops 
even in fact uh, in basins, uh, settlement basins, completely on the other side, 100 miles away, that are on the other side of the Columbia River. Um, and, and so um, what I'm getting at is that let's say that there was 50 years between deposition of these layers. Well, what's going to happen? So, so the day after or the week after, let's say, the backwash comes in, lays down its layer of mud and flows out. What's going to start happening immediately in that environment over the next few years? Well, you're going to start having, um, you know, nature's going to start reclaiming the environment, right? Mm. Yeah. And absolutely. so first you're going to get most likely the first thing that's going to show up there is ferns, but then it's going to go through a full ecological succession. And I mean, like they're, they're putting in a, um, a, uh, a project that they, they graded the land uh, within a mile of my house there, they're going to build a, a new really big farmer's market. So one mm -hmm. of the things they did is they, they cleared off um, several acres of land. And this was, I think now going on four years, but you now have trees growing there that are six, eight, 10, 12 feet tall. Wow. Right. So this is literally only in four years. Now, right. This was this would have been a colder environment than it is now, but it would have still been boreal forest. You could have easily had larch trees, alder trees, spruce trees, all kinds of vegetation. Now, let's suppose this layer of mud now sits here for 50, 60, 70 years. Well, by 70 years, it's going to have really like a, a, a an early successional forest growing on it. Now, the next layer comes in, the next back excuse me, backwash comes in. Well, again, it's depositional. It's not erosive. What it's actually doing is should be entombing whatever is there. Um, and so there should be evidence that there was some kind of a, a landscape between each of these successive layers. You should be able to find tree limbs and, and layers of plants and, and seeds and pollen and everything in between there. What about mycelium? Point, I was going to ask you too, because it, they, I think you know, obviously we're into mushrooms and mycology and all that stuff. Does would would you be able to find evidence of like mycelium? Because they say mycelium covers like one third of all the ground or whatever. It, you know, plays off of everything, all the vegetation and trees and everything. So, is there evidence that you'd be able to find, or is that something that's so biodegradable? Oh no, I would think you could find. I mean, you know. Palynologists study pollen, which is can be microscopic. Okay, and that will show you what kind of plants were growing in the vicinity because you right. know the wind will carry pollen and the pollen will become deposited. So yeah, all of that from microscopic to macroscopic material should be showing up between each of these layers if there's decades of hiatus time between the succession of each layer, and that's part of the problem. See, is that that stuff isn't showing up. Right. And I think that's a, that's fatal for the idea, the current model. Right. That you should you should be able to uh, excavate into these layers here, and and when you do that, yeah. Now here, this is what I was talking about. This is completely on the other side of the oh, Columbia wow. River, and there there's uh, 39 layers that have been counted. Mm. Right. And so each one of these layers is presumably, you know, how do we explain it? Is it is it pulses of meltwater that are separated by hours or days, or is it pulses of meltwater that's separated by decades? See, that's that's part of the issue here. And how Yeah, there's definitely down. very visible layers. I mean, there's no oh, yeah. doubt about it right there. 
Oh, yeah, there's very visible layers. Here's another one. Wow. And I am of the mind that most of these were laid down in quick succession. And I have, have studying the topography of the areas is what convinces me that that's the case. And we'd have to go into some a fair amount of background and detail uh, to explain how this works, which is actually coming up on our podcast series. I'm going to be diving into all this because, you know, we are going to do, assuming everything is opened up, we're planning a field trip out to this area uh, in May. I'm going to take a group of people out and we're going to spend a whole week. We've already got a, a, a resort reserved at the south end of Soap Lake, which is at the mouth of Grand Coulee. And we've got it reserved for a whole week. And the idea is to do a tour of the great floodlands of the Pacific Northwest. That's and, awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. So um, what's going on with the gorge? Cause we're big grateful dead and fish fans. And there's a lot of, uh, bands that play at that gorge. If you know what I'm talking about, it's like a gorge amphitheater. It's in Washington. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, okay, what you got there, guys, is that's part of the great flood, mega flood erosional complex right there. Hmm. Um, uh, it's very close to Potholes Cataract, which, um, gosh, Potholes Cataract is a massive, massive erosional feature that is a legacy of these tremendous floods. Uh, in fact, I could, I guess... Uh, uh, actually pull up here. Are, are we off of share screen now? Yeah, but we can jump back in, whatever. I just got to play uh, cameraman for a second, but we're all good, whatever you want to do. I mean, we can pivot, too, and get to some more of the other stuff we were talking about if you want. Whatever like, you want to do, Mike, is I'm good. With, I'm, right. I'm just here for, to Well, enjoy let's talk a little show. bit, because you know, you know a lot about like sacred geometry and symbolism and masonry and all that kind of stuff. Um, I have lately I've been on this kick that, you know, the new book just came out, The Immortality Key from Brian Murescu. Uh yeah. He has a good take on it, um, and he provided physical evidence for uh, ergot being found in some of these chalices and different mm -hmm. uh, vessels and stuff like that, and they found all these random vessels at, like, Pompeii that had, uh, like, Datura and all these different compounds and uh, psychoactive compounds and stuff. So lately, even before this book came out, I mean, for the last two years, I've been on this kick where I've never seen anything crazy in day-to-day -day consciousness. I've never seen anything that's, like, blown my mind that would give me the idea that there's external entities beyond this visible realm or anything like that. However, under the influence of psychedelics and altered states, meditation, whatever the case may be, those things become possible. And now we mm -hmm. know the Eleusinian Mysteries definitely had uh, fasting mixed with psychedelics. Um, so your knowledge and what you know on everything, do you think that that's where a lot of this stuff comes from? You know, maybe Pythagoras was actually seeing geometric patterns and shapes and things like that while under the influence. And we know a lot of these people did participate. I mean, all Greeks had to at least once in their lifetime or could only do it once. Absolutely, I think that that's a possibility. Yeah, I haven't done any psychedelics in a long time, um, but in uh, back in the day, uh, I became convinced that there was all kinds of alternative realities that um, were still awaiting our, you know, our, our explorations. And so, yeah, one of these days, I would like to 
get back, pick pick that thread up again. And um, but you know there there was a there was a time there was a window where it was, you know everything was really really cool and it lasted a few years and then it kind of soured. Mm. And so, what about so like in terms of your personal experience and stuff like that? Have you thought about? the stuff that you're into, like all of this, the younger drives, like, have you ever had any like visions? Cause like, for instance, whatever, I mean, I, I look at, you know, psychedelics is like psychomimetic or placebo in the sense that, yeah, something really is ha- real is happening to you. Your, your mind's going somewhere. However, um, you know, what you're looking into at the time seems to be reflective in that experience. Have you, when you remember doing it, do you, you know, were you interested in this stuff at that time? And, and was there something kind of intuitive or, uh, you know, some sort of metaphysical connection to this idea that came about? I would say yes. Then I guess if I understood your question, I would say yes. It was a that. terrible question. So <laughs> I'm joking. Just in the terms like when, when you did psychedelics, did you feel some connection to like what you're studying now, like what your research is all about? Like was well, there? Yeah. What I'm studying now was an outgrowth of what I experienced half a century ago. Okay. Put it that way. Um, yeah, because, you know, hey, look, I was just a dumb kid when I started. Mm. 17. I mean, what did I know when I was 17, right? But by three years later, you know, I had gone through a complete metamorphosis and had, you know, basically in that interim had discovered God, if you want to put it that way. And um, that God wasn't just, you know, something that some abstract thing that I heard about in Sunday school. Right. Mm-hmm. It was now something that was very real. And my in t- my take of it was that that the cosmic intelligence, that all of nature was imbued with a cosmic intelligence, if you will. And for me, that's what it what it led to. It led to me being obsessed with understanding nature, how the world worked, how the universe worked, what was the interaction between the earth and the cosmos and all of that kind of stuff. Because I, you know, I started out initially, you know, doing psychedelic trips in 1968. And my main interest at that time was going to rock concerts. Mm-hmm. Well, that was by 68. By the summer of 69, see, I'd always loved the outdoors, and I grew up in a very rural environment. So I grew up hunting, not so much hunting, but camping, fishing, hiking, canoeing, horseback riding, you know, just generally being outdoors. And then uh, I just kept doing that kind of stuff. So on camping trips, I just suddenly, I just, I there was this whole other dimension to it. And I would go out and you know, go go on camping trips and, and be out in nature. And that was over the summer of 69 is where, 1969 is where I began to really get this sense that there was a, if you will, a hidden meaning in the landscapes. And that the landscapes were conveying some kind of information, a, a level of knowledge. And so, yeah, that was an insight that I didn't know how to describe. I had no language I had no conceptual framework, and it's still I struggle to to describe what I experienced. Then. But basically, what I if I if I can tr- I'll try again. What it was is I came to this sense that there was meaning that it, you know. In other words, a hill telos ceased to be just a hill telos or telos. Yes, a hill ceased to be just a hill. Suddenly, there was a story there. There was a meaning. There was some kind of meaning infused in the landscapes, and so. I uh, 
it sort of was an awakening that there was this intelligence in the world that there was essentially it'd be like this if you had this book with a um an unintelligible script and let's say you were completely illiterate you didn't even know that there was such a thing as writing and now you find this book and you're looking in this book and every page is you know inscriptions or or some kind of a narrative but you didn't even know that there existed a such thing as a written language Right. So the first realization is is realizing that, okay, I don't know what this means, but there's meaning embedded here. Then the second stage is like trying to decipher and figure out, okay, what is this meaning? And now you discover, okay, there are clues I, that I can use. So like, guess what? Somebody has left this clue where I can go in and now substitute, you know, this symbol for this symbol because I know what this symbol means. Just like when you do decipherment of any kind of encoded message, right? You have right. to, like, you start through this decipherment process. Well, it was, it's been like that for me. It, it was like I became aware of the fact that, okay, this thing has meaning, but I don't know what it means. I just know that it has meaning. Sure. So half a century now has been involved in trying to decipher that meaning. And I think I've made some headway. I got a long ways to go, but I think I've made some headway. And where I place, where I put it now is this, that basically the entire planet bears the imprint of these great cosmic events. And the most recent one of these cosmic events that affected the entire planet was 12 to 13,000 years ago, according to the great processional clock, mm. which was the basis of the archaic model of the of the great year, right? Which was this grand cycle where Earth was periodically destroyed and renewed, right? Well, so if you think of it this way, that there has been this message encoded into the landscape of planet Earth. It's been there for 11, 12, 13,000 years. And it's been, for the most part, completely... Uh, the, uh, the human species has been completely oblivious to this message, except for a very exceptional few who generally are what we think of as prophets mm -hmm. or mystics, people who have actually penetrated through and seen this idea. You know, when, 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 when Alfred Watkins first discovered the existence of, these, of the ley line complex in the British Isles, he had this visionary experience where he actually beheld the lines of the world, right? Which is probably related to anomalies in the geomagnetic field, however you want to try to describe it scientifically. But he had this moment of awakening where he saw something that his fellow man had not seen. And I think it's very much like that, is that you train yourself to begin to see this stuff and then when you do, you begin to realize, okay, there is a story, there's a narrative, it's engraved into the planetary surface, and for 10 or 12 or 13,000 years, we've been living on it and within it, but because of the grand scale of it, it's been outside of our purview, outside of our, our scope of vision. But now, coming as we are into the 21st century, we have a couple of things that are beginning to converge. We have the ancient legacy the traditions that have been handed down to us for thousands of years from ancestors that had a very sophisticated working knowledge of the world, mm -hmm. right? 
and this has been encoded into myths and legend and folklore and epic poetry and all of these different ritual and ceremonies and all of this, it's been encoded. You mentioned earlier the Eleusinian mysteries. Right. I think that's a big component of what is ha- what is there is the initiates are being given some kind of a, a means whereby they can penetrate, pierce the veil, and begin to see that there is this layer that's invisible to most people, but it's there. And once you begin to see it, you can't ever unsee it. Do and we know so, if the allegory of Plato's cave, when it was written, and if it was written before Plato participated or after he participated in the Eleusinian Mysteries? If I, I would guess it would have, if I had to guess, it would be after. Yeah, me too. That's why I asked the question. Yeah, I, but I didn't know if there was actual knowledge on whether, I mean, it's, it's the whole thing's a gray area, right? Some people don't even think Socrates existed. I don't, I don't subscribe to that at all. I'm pretty sure the dude existed, but. I mean, there's a lot of weird things within the philosophy world and people believing in certain weird things, and it's mm-hmm. like anything else. But um, my question, oh, shout out to Shermanator too. Thanks for the for the uh, super uh, chat. The super donation chat. Um, but I just wanted to say, with to your point about like this thin veil and getting a peek, you know, behind it and like lifting the veil and that whole thing. Um, the Greeks only got that one shot at it, meaning that um, you were only allowed to participate in, in the greater mysteries once in your life. I think the lesser mysteries you could probably do more, if, I'm, if, if I recall right, which would be the more of the planting, the spring festival, and then you've got, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, the later, the, the greater mysteries, which is supposedly you've got the telesterion and uh, the, the whole ceremony and there's different, you know, you have to fast and it's this whole festival. Um, do you think that just having, it's just that one experience. So that would leave a lasting impression because you can't really dive back into it. We know, I believe it's 415 BC, Alcibiades participated in what's called the profaning of the Eleusinian mysteries where he had a dinner party and he mm. supposedly took part in the mysteries at home, which was a big no, no got in trouble. He ended up going to, I believe Sicily and they lost that battle and then he comes back and is okay, I guess. But yeah, he was in hot water for a while. Mm. Uh, but when you have those things happening back then, um, it makes you wonder like if, if, it's not because I think a lot of the Victorians and a lot of people were trying to say that the Eleusinian Mysteries were was some sort of like dramatic Greek play or something to like, you know, kind of, I don't even know, just some sort of paradigm shifting thing. But in my eyes, the only paradigm shifting thing to them would have been some sort of a psychedelic experience because they already knew about amazing plays and, you know, you had uh, Aristophanes and, you know, mm-hmm. all those guys. So... Um, that wouldn't make sense that it was some sort of play or light show or something that, that, that doesn't, you know, jive well with me in terms of, uh, when I think about it. So the only thing that makes sense to me is this hallucinogenic experience. And now the only thing left is they found ergot in these chalices and all these different vessels. I think Terrence McKenna talks about how Gordon Wasson says, or was it Albert Hoffman? I forget. It was one of the two part of the road to Eleusis. They were talking about the only, cause ergot's poisonous. I mean, you can, mm-hmm. you can get messed up on it, but it is part of the alkaloid used when they synthesize LSD. So I think his thinking was you could float some hot oil on the mixture, which I think is water, mint and barley or something along those lines. There's only three ingredients within the, uh, Kikion, which was the drink that they drank. Um, 
it, it, that one experience, so you're saying you had your experiences a long time ago. They left a lasting impression on you. So if you imagine only having one of those your entire life, you would believe in the metaphysical. And that's why I always think that mm-hmm. that's where metaphysics comes from. Yeah, you had uh, the Indo um, or the, uh, you know, the uh, Iranian, you know, the, the Vedic, mm-hmm. all the stuff, the, the migrations mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And you have those people with Soma. So Soma's being introduced and you got the the Rig Veda and a lot of mes- what metaphysics going on there. And then you have Greece, similar things happening there. That's kind of where I keep going with this whole thing is that uh, that's where these ideas of metaphysics comes from is is being able to participate in the in, in some metaphysical realm basically mm-hmm. yeah and I, I i would concur with that yeah and i and i see i think that you know um it, it was all very ritual based and you know modern freemasonry is basically all built around the ritual the ritual of the degree work and ritual can be very powerful just mm-hmm. in itself but I think if you combined it with psychedelics, it could definitely go to the next level. Um, and you would have major consciousness breakthroughs. Uh, and I think that that's undoubtedly, in my mind, what was going on was kind of a combination of powerful ritual with uh, mind-expanding substances. Yeah, I mean, if you look, you know, right, the, the work uh, of, uh, the Ellicinian Mysteries does suggest that they were using some kind of a concoction that had psychedelic properties. Likewise with the, the Mithraic religion, likewise mm. with the, the Vedic right. uh, religion. And of course, Mithraism basically can tr- be traced back through the Iranian Mysteries, which then traces back to mm-hmm. you know the Iranian Persian Mysteries, which traces back to the Vedic Mysteries. And yeah, and and then in, in Freemasonry, of course, you have the uh, constant reference in the uh, rituals to acacia, which of course is, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I know you're a Mason, and I know who did uh, P.D. Newman wrote a book called Alchemically Stoned, where he goes through the history of all the ancient Mason alchemists and the, how you know the philosopher stone was most likely um, possibly a DMT extraction or. Um, you should talk to him, actually. He's a good dude, mm. and he's got an interesting take on it. Um, but he, you know, that's his whole thing is a lot of the, you know, what he said it was acacia. It was originally some other thing. Uh, I, I, I'm drawing a blank. But it wasn't always the acacia sprig. It was something else first, I think, and then it became mm. that. Or was that initially? I forget. But, yeah, super interesting stuff. Um I will shift a little bit here now because we did say we want to talk about the Kabiri um, and the origins of that. Um, so why don't you explain what you know about the Kabiri, which are these lesser gods of ancient Greece? Okay. Um, well, they were the minor deities, I guess you'd call them. Right. Um Let's see. Let me recall here. Uh, mostly, I'm not so familiar with the origin of the group as much as I am with their their traditions. Right. Um, but yeah, they were in that whole area of Greece, um, and they've been they're associated with um, journeys with um, sailors with nautical symbolism, uh, which I think fits right in the whole idea of. You know, when you talk about the 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 ergot, you know, um, you're looking at a word that's um, whose derivatives connect it with um, 
it's derivative, tracing it back, um, uh, tracing it back to its origins. You'll find that it's related to the word that ergot mm-hmm. is related to the word argot, mm. right? Argot, which in argot is or argo can be either one, argot or argo. Argot was the um, the secret language amongst the initiates, mm. so it implies something that's it's the secret and so using phonetic traditions of, of word association like they did in the kabbalah the argo ship remember was the the in search of the golden fleece yeah that jason and been, the argonauts right yeah which is taken as a metaphor for the you know the the, the alchemical gold mm. you know and the quest for the al- <clears throat> the alchemical gold which is a symbol so you have this kind of juxtaposition of symbols there you have the the ship argo you have the um you have the, the the Argo, which is the which is the the secret language of the initiates, and then you have the Argot, and they're spelled the same way: Argot, Ergot, mm-hmm. and then you have the Ergot, which is the um, you know, which is basically like a, a a hook. It's like a crescent-shaped hook that grows on the rye grains. Yeah, it's a uh, rye fungus. Rye fungus that can be on wheat. Claviceps purpurea, if anybody's interested. Yes. And, you know, again, in the Masonic Mysteries, one of the things that you learn is that um, in the ritual is the hanging of the sheaf, the sheaf of wheat, or it can be a sheaf of rye that's hung by a waterfall. I suspect that the purpose of that is alluding to um, the cultivation of the ergot onto the stalks of grain, mm. um, just like the references to the acacia. So, I mean, there are these veiled references throughout the, the ritual that could suggest or imply some connection with an original um yeah you know, concoction um, and dmt is i mean dmt is in acacia it's actually a high percentage and then you also have peganum harmala which is an mao uh, inhibitor which is found in that region as well so if they put two and two together like they have in the amazon i don't see why that couldn't be a possibility and bam, boom yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so the Kabiri, we're, we're in their traditions, they are associated with the sea, with sailors, with journeys, the nautical activities, and so on. So a lot of times the, the Kabiri were, um, you know, were, were the protective deities of sailors. So I find that very interesting because, it's again, it's this, the, the idea of the journey, which is very much what the whole psychedelic experience is all about, is this is the is the the mystical journey or the metaphysical journey if you want to call it that um so there were I, there was a cycle of uh, celebrations uh that were celebrated i know in samothrace or in um a lot of the turkish and greek areas uh you know uh worshiping these minor deities uh yeah that's like phrygian based right or something uh like the uh western coast of turkey that whole region yeah that whole region that's yes that's exactly where they were they were um probably the most entrenched um the stories about them suggest that they were you know were magicians that they were able to control a lot of the forces of nature so i think that you know the possibility is that when you go behind these the imagery of the minor deities, what we're really talking about is perhaps ways of anthropogenically or anthropomorphically representing forces or powers of nature. Mm. And so by communicating with these deities and 
being able to control the deities to some extent through ritual, we get the idea that they were perhaps controlling forces of nature. And this is where their, um, their, their reputation as magicians would have, would have come from. Um, yeah, and even Young went deep on the Kabiri and added it into his whole thing um and that's where you get like in the red book um and uh-huh. he talks about them you know and actually even if the were even demons or daemons you know that that's similar in the sense that they were not necessarily even demons as you would expect to see in like a movie now they were just um kind of like external unseen entities that controlled things similar to what we're talking about so uh there is this culture of that within you know and you look at the greeks you know they were measuring everything they were understanding things they were creating they were creating philosophy metaphysics you know the whole natural science the whole thing so you would have to think that there's something to what they're saying in some regard yes yes i would think so and and um you know, in the, the theological systems of the Phoenicians, the Kabiri played a, a, a large role, which kind of, in a way, connects back with the idea that I said that I kind of envisioned perhaps Atlantis as being sort of like uh, uh, the Phoenician or the Minoan civilization raised by an order of magnitude, mm. right? And again, so you have this idea of of, of nautical journeys and, and seafaring and the sea and all of the symbolism that goes with the sea there's also a strong lunar component to the ritualism of the Kabiris. They worshipped the moon, uh, mm-hmm. and they had they had uh, rituals and ceremonies where they would carry uh, a boat that was shaped like a lunar crescent, and that was that was literally associated with the moon. And right. uh, they probably go back to Egypt. There, there was probably an Egyptian connection there. Um, I'm, there's there's a lot of things that uh, I'm not familiar with uh because i haven't studied that much into them yet it's one of those things that god they the whole see we're we're sort of this is one of the things i was getting at earlier is that you know we have such an access to these traditions and knowledge unlike any generation before us right and and so when we combine that with the fact that we can now get this holistic view of the planet we live on I mean, think about this. I mean, when I was born in 1951, I like to make the point that we had absolutely no presence in space at all, mm-hmm. right? The The space program came about in the, in the late 50s, right? And I saw the whole, the birth of the space program, old enough to have seen that, right? So right. we're sitting here by virtue of the fact that there's, you know, 2,000 communication satellites up there orbiting the Earth. You know, you're up in Michigan and I'm in Georgia, and we can sit here looking at each other and talk hmm. to each other. Well, Crazy. we're also mapping the entire planet's planetary surface, right? And we're we're beginning to you know make bathymetric charts of the ocean floor, and with lidar now we can penetrate through the canopy of vegetation and the layers of topsoil, and we can actually look at the bedrock itself, right? So we're able, you know, so when we're looking at this enhanced perspective of the planet. Just the, the the technologies we now have within the last few decades is allowing us to see the planet in a holistic scale like we've never been able to before. So that's one side of this stream of, of new awareness. The other is what we've just been talking about, that we now have access to all of these tremendously rich traditions from our past. And when we start looking at those as complementary to each other, you know, in other words, 
we're looking at these traditions that we've inherited from the past, whether it's, you know, whether it's Masonic or the Kabiri or, mm-hmm. or, you know, the architectural, uh, incredible architectural uh, examples all over the world, the, the apparent knowledge of, of astronomy that's built into the architectural infrastructure of the ancient world. I mean, when we begin listing all of these things, we kind of realize, wow, what a privileged uh, perspective we now have. And we can start now connecting the dots in ways that were not even possible 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. Absolutely. We're talking right now on the modern-day Akashic record, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except people so, are using it for aristic yeah, rhetoric. slippery slope. Yeah, the people are using it for aristic rhetoric and just arguing without looking for truth. They just want to win the argument. Um, oh, to the point of the Kabiri, though, they were part of, like, the Chthonic... I don't even know how you pronounce that. That's that weird. I think it's I think it's Chthonic. Chthonic? Okay. And it, it meant subterranean. So like if Gaia, it, it, it actually meant, uh, you know, Earth, but in the terms of like under the Earth, because like Gaia is associated with like above, like the surface. And this was, mm-hmm. these are associated with below the surface. And also you have, um, uh, I believe they were correlated, or there was a correlation with Hephaestus and Hephaestus is known as the god of, you know, uh, metallurgy and metalworking and mm-hmm. uh, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of cool connections. And I, I recently, I've always been, a, like, saw myself as associated with, like, ancient Greece. Like, I don't believe I was, like, an Egyptian priest or anything like that. But if I had to pick, like, an ancient time that I always felt like, you know, a connection with, it was ancient Greece. Uh, Egypt until recently. I don't know. I f- I'm feeling this ancient Greece. I don't know why. I just, uh, I've really gotten deep and, you know, even from Mycenae and the whole Mycenaean culture, and then you see how it evolves into the, you know, the, what we know as classical ancient Greece and all that. I just, there's something romantic about it to me. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the worship of the Kabiri uh, in uh, Memphis, particularly, uh, was associated with Vulcan, mm-hmm. which of course implies a subterranean kind of. And um, in there were coins that were found showing a dwarf-like figure holding a hammer and an apron, and these were worshipped uh, in by the Kabiri. And um, and what, what's called the Pileus, I guess mm-hmm. that's how you say it, the Pileus. Yeah, which which was the hat worn by Vulcan which is also suggestive of the hat worn by Mithras, because Mithras always wore a hat. But when you look up the, the, the meaning of the word Peleus, so, so this dwarf was basically, that was that's part of the pantheon, the, the Kabiri pantheon, had these elements that associated him very much with, with Vulcan. It mm. was the, the hammer, the apron, and the hat, right? The hat is called the Peleus. And let me see if I can just pull up here. So here's the meaning of the, of the Peleus. It's a brimless hat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, let's see. It also means the cap of a mushroom. Mm. Nice. I like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, uh, I was going to say too, oh, shout out to Home Mycology. Shout out to uh, John. We appreciate the Super Chat uh, donation. Um, I wanted to point out though with the whole thing the the kabiri are i have seen articles and i have seen correlations made to psychedelic entities meaning that um people have experienced these what you mentioned these like underground 
you know, mm-hmm. spirits or, you know, little workers or something like that mm-hmm. of some mm-hmm. sort. I mean, Terrence McKenna calls them machine elves. I think people take that and run away with it and yeah, yeah. Um, do that. Well, see, and, and, and so, right, think about what I just said. On these coins, right. this, this That's deity what I is depicted as a dwarf. Right. I mean, and he's wearing a hat. Yeah. It's called the Pileus. It's the same as Vulcan wore and very similar to what Mithras wore. Right. And it also means the cap of a mushroom. So, right. Uh, it, it, that's just too suggestive to me to be coincidental. Absolutely. No, I think that there's obviously something there. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I want to look more into it. I haven't, I have the red book loaded on my phone for audible. So I'm going to take a listen to that at some point here. Maybe we can talk about it again sometime in the future, but, uh, yeah. Is there anything else before we jump to do a Patreon session here? Is there anything else that we were going to get to? I'm trying to think. I think we talked about a lot of what we said we were going to talk about. But Yeah, uh, we did. I think maybe what we should do is, you know, we could keep a list of things and see what kind of response this gets and then perhaps reconvene in a month or two. Oh, the live chat's uh, been on fire. People have uh, really, really, oh, really, really dig this. Yeah, people love it. Um, and I know... A lot of our fans like the psychedelic angle as well, because I do think that there's a lot of truth there. So I don't think it's just mm-hmm, wanting mm-hmm. to talk about the subject. I, I really think mm-hmm, that it's mm-hmm. important and it matters. But uh, yeah, listen, we really appreciate your time. For anybody that's listening right now, we're going to jump over and, and record a Patreon session. If you want to listen to that, um, you can go on over to our Patreon at uh patreon.com slash mind escape podcast for two dollars a month you can get access to all of our extra content that we have on there we have a bunch of stuff on there um and go check out randall's website randallcarlson.com he also does a show cosmographia with uh the brothers of the serpent uh how do you guys do that once a week or twice a week yeah we record one once a week and then it we don't record live we usually it usually goes up anywhere from one to two weeks after we're a little bit behind now because we were out on the road for nine or ten days, yeah. Um, and so we kind of fell behind, but we're catching up. I think there's going to be a new episode uh, uploaded by tomorrow, or which is actually today, my time now. But um, uh, yeah, and then there's two more that are being edited and cleaned up, and then they'll be going up probably within the next week. So uh, we've got I don't know fifty. I think maybe forty nine is going up, and we've got three more another one so 50 i think or 51 goes up tomorrow awesome yeah so, and, uh, that's that's again check out the cosmography it's it's really a good good uh, podcast yeah and, and for those that are really interested in in the idea of the impact uh phenomena and the younger dryas we go into a very thorough study of that uh there's a lot of stuff we didn't get into but what i'd like what i'm trying to do there is have a place where people can go if you're if you want to know about the younger Dryas and some of those uh, pivotal events in the history of our planet and how they affected people and all of that and and the, the uh, biosphere and the environment. What I'm trying to do is have have a resource that people can go to and where if you want to learn about the younger Dryas, go to Cosmographia and you've got about ten episodes that just get into that in great detail. But we're moving on. We're moving on to some of the. Uh, the gigantic hydraulic events now that mm. have swept over the planet. And then from there, we'll segue into a lot of these other areas and these topics that, you know, that we've been talking about here tonight. 
Very cool. Well, I look forward to that and uh, keep tabs on that. Also, again, shout out to uh, Kyle and Russ. Thank you for helping set this up. We really appreciate that. And if you haven't already, go check out the Brothers of the Serpent podcast as well. Um, again, I have all of Randall's links down below. He does have a new website, randallcarlson.com. Please go there, check it out. And yeah, I, uh, I'm not affiliated with Sacred Geometry anymore. I'm disappointed to report. But, right. But, if you follow, I, I, just just that's that has nothing to do with them. Just ignore it and just move on to just randallcarlson.com and Cosmographia. Thank you, thank you. And um, yeah, this is this. I've had a lot of fun with you guys. So we'll have oh, to do this. We again. really appreciate it, man. And you're such a wealth of knowledge. And uh, I love just having interesting conversations with people that have done their homework and really. Um, put time into things and you know we're talking about ancient Greece and just has a specific you know a, a techne you know like you've, you've mastered you know mm. the research on what you're interested in and I can really really appreciate that so um, yeah Thanks thank again, you so much man, I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, very quick I want to give a shout out to Brad Young who's been a part of the team okay. without whom we wouldn't have the Cosmographia podcasts um, so he's, you know, to anybody who tunes in, you know, he's one of the regulars, the weekly regulars. And uh, and then I'd also mention how to, to for people to check out how to, because it's going to be, I think, a new game-changing platform. And I'm proud to be associated with them in their early stages of, of, uh, of growth and evolution. Yeah, go check out how to. It's on the link is on his website, randallcarlson.com. Yeah, and yeah. you can check it out there. All the information's on there. I'm looking forward to that. We talked about it before the uh before we went live, and I'm really looking forward to that having just an alternative thing, a resource that yeah, yeah. you don't have to be worried about stuff. And uh, I really look right. forward to that. So also check out our pod or our website, mindescapepodcast.com. We have all of our links up on there. I will be updating some more stuff on there soon. And one more shout out before we go, go to indrasweb.org if you have not already. This is the app that we created. Um, if you sign up, you'll get an alert when it goes live. It'll probably be going live, I don't know how soon, but sometime soon we were just waiting for the media stuff to die down. So go there, check it out. If you like rational discourse and have a you know hypothesis or theory or you like talking about all this stuff, that's what it's designed for. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth, so go check that out, please. And listen, again, I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody stay safe out there. We love you. And uh, we'll get Randall on sometime in the near future. Peace. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.